Welcome to the Rennert Women in Judaism Forum uh, entitled Impossible Homecomings, Women Ethnographers and the Places They Left Behind. It is a true honor to introduce Ruth Bahar, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Michigan and currently visiting distinguished professor at the University of Miami. It is a special privilege to introduce her not only because she is a renowned writer and scholar, but also because she has been my mentor, incessant supporter, and inspiring role model for the past decade, especially when she acted as my PhD advisor at the University of Michigan. Indeed, she has inspired anthropologists, writers, filmmakers, and many others across the US and around the world um, through her thoughtful, provocative, beautiful, and often moving writing, and most recently filmmaking as well. In, 1990, in 1988, at the start of her career as an anthropologist, Ruth Bahar was awarded the MacArthur Foundation Genius Award. She has since been the recipient of many prestigious fellowships for her scholarly and artistic work. These include the John Simon Guggenheim Award in 1995 and the Creative Artist Grant from the Michigan Council of Arts and Cultural Affairs in 1998. Latina Magazine in 1999 named her one of the 50 Latinas who made history in the 20th century. She is the author of numerous essays, poems, and several books. Her second book, Translated Woman Crossing the Border with Esperanza's Story, an account of her friendship with a Mexican street peddler, gained her uh, national prominence. The Vulnerable, Vulnerable Observer, Anthropology That Breaks Your Heart, another of Ruth Bahar's books, is a controversial and widely discussed collection of six personal essays that places the emotions of loss, mourning, and the search for home at the center of anthropology and all acts of witnessing. Her personal essays, short stories, and poems have been published in a wide range of anthologies, journals, and even handmade artisanal books. She is also the director and producer of Adio Querida, Goodbye Dear Love, A Cuban Sephardic Journey, a feature-length uh, film about the search for identity and memory among Sephardic Jews, Cuban Jews living in Cuba, Miami, and New York, a film that I am very proud to have taken part in. Without further ado, please help me in welcoming Ruth Bahar. Thank you. It's a huge pleasure to be here and an honor and so moving to be introduced by Gisela Fosado, who uh, was a beloved student. And um, you can't be a good mentor unless you have really great students. And uh, Gisela was an amazing student. And um, we worked together on Adio Querida. She was the camera woman. And uh, we would often be confused for mother-daughter when we were roaming around uh, Cuba and Miami, and that was very beautiful, too. So thank you, Gisela. It's really a pleasure to be here. So I wasn't quite sure exactly how to prepare my remarks. I wasn't sure if this would be more of an academic audience or a general audience. So I kind of did half and half. I have some written comments that I'll share with you. And then I'm just going to talk um, more informally using some of the images uh, that I brought today. Leaving home to go to someplace exotic, someplace that has nothing to do with the anthropologist's own life or heritage, was the classical model of anthropological displacement. And when I was a graduate student, the greatest prestige in anthropology went to those who worked in New Guinea. 
But the heated debates about identity politics that began in the 70s and continued throughout the 80s and 90s put into question who had the right to speak for whom. Ethnographers gave themselves permission to embark on journeys of return to lost or abandoned homes or even to homes that belonged to ancestors and which they only knew about secondhand, places where they became ambivalent insiders rather than absolute outsiders to the societies they examine. Now these journeys have roots in the work of two important women ethnographers, Zora Neale Hurston and Ella Deloria. And you may know that they were both students of Franz Boas, the father of American anthropology, and studied with him here at Barnard College and at Columbia in the 20s and 30s. And they fought very hard to become ethnographers, not native informants, who documented their own African-American and Native American communities at a time when anthropology was only conceived as a voyage out. But the work of Hurston and Deloria was lost to the canon of anthropology until the late 80s and early 90s, when the expanding numbers of minority ethnographers, feminist ethnographers, and literary ethnographers went searching for alternative intellectual genealogies. And I, among, among them, found out about Hurston and Deloria, um, even though their names had never been mentioned to us uh, in graduate school. By that time, there was a growing literature by ethnographers working on the theme of homecoming. These ethnographers wanted to go home, but felt uneasy as anthropologists. They weren't sure if they could or even if they should be doing such a thing. And one of the pioneering works of anthropological homecoming, Number Our Days, by Barbara Meyerhoff, was first published in 1980. And she explored the lives of elderly Jews who belonged to a social center in Venice, California, which was next door to where she taught at the University of Southern California. Her interlocutors had many questions of the anthropologist. Upon her arrival, Meyerhoff was asked, are you Jewish? Are you married? Is it true that human beings began in Africa once upon a time? These feisty Yiddish-speaking ancestors were anxious to pass on their stories to her. They were survivors who had been spared the suffering of the Holocaust and lived to extreme old age, carrying a tremendous burden of guilt while still remaining engaged with the world through their love of storytelling and ritual. Meyerhoff was convinced that these elders, forgotten by everybody but her, could teach the rest of us how to grow old gracefully. And she was being funded by a gerontology institute at her university, so therefore the focus on elders. As she buoyantly stated in the accompanying film about her work, also called Number Our Days, she hoped that when she became a little old Jewish lady, she would be just like these elders. If ever there was an anthropologist who'd found the story that was hers to tell, it was Meyerhoff. Her elders living in the vicinity of Hollywood, after all, thought they deserved an Academy Award for their amazing stories and told Meyerhoff as much. And lo and behold, the movie version of Number Our Days actually won an Oscar. Meyerhoff had originally wanted to study Chicanos in California, but was told by her potential subjects that she should study, quote, her own people. 
That was how she came to find herself among Jewish elders in the 80, who were in their 80s and 90s and welcomed her as a long-lost daughter but mourned her ignorance of Hebrew, Yiddish, and what it meant to be a Jew. How could she be so uneducated about her own history, her own identity? Teach me, she begged the elders who had one foot on death's doorstep. Her salvage anthropology turned out to be about salvaging the identity of the anthropologist. It is her lack of knowledge rather than her expertise that the text so starkly reveals. Yet the revelation of what she doesn't know paradoxically makes it possible for her to know something more fundamental, that her quest for anthropological knowledge is inseparable from her quest for self-knowledge. Home is not so much a place as a state of mind. Sadly, she never got to become the little old Jewish lady she thought she would be one day. The elderly Venice Jews who were dying and disappearing literally as Meyerhoff finished speaking to them weren't the only ones about to be extinguished. Hers was an untimely death. In 1985, Meyerhoff was stricken by lung cancer and she was gone from us at the age of 49. I am afraid of Barbara Meyerhoff's ghost. Many years ago, an anthropologist who was a close friend of Meyerhoff's told me that I reminded her of Meyerhoff. I was honored to be compared to an anthropologist I greatly admire, but I trembled with fear. She would be 72 if she were alive, my mother's age. Four years ago, I developed pneumonia while traveling in Cuba, and they found a nodule on my left lung. I was convinced it would not be long before my path and Meyerhoff's crossed, but I recovered. The nodule, they assured me, was benign. When I'm not afraid, I like to believe that Meyerhoff's ghost isn't vengeful. On the contrary, she's an angel of history working, watching over me as I embark on my own project of anthropological homecoming, which also involves looking at Jews, the Jews who remain in Cuba. It was after Meyerhoff that Latino ethnographers such as Jose Limon, would return to hometowns mired by violence and poverty to examine vexed journeys out of and back into the ghetto, and feminist ethnographers such as Laila Abu-Lugad and Kiran Narayan would delve into Hafi identities in journeys to homelands in Egypt and India, places claimed through family and ethnic ties as well as through longings for memory and connection. Now, Meyerhoff's work haunts me with its Jewish echoes, but as a woman who comes from the other America across the border, from Cuba, I have also needed to turn to the work of Latin American and Caribbean women and Latinas to fully see who I am when I try to go home. Gloria Ansaldúa, whose Borderlands La Frontera was published in 1987, gave me my first intimate framework for thinking about impossible and yet deeply longed for homecomings. Ansaldúa wrote self-consciously as a Chicana who had found refuge in gay-friendly, progressive Northern California. There were two homelands which haunted her, neither of which she could return to. There was Mexico, caught between its glorious Aztec past and the grinding poverty of the present, which leads its people to cross the border 
an open wound, as Ansaldua described it, as un undocumented workers. And then there was South Texas, colonized Mexican territory, where she'd grown up among farm laborers, her people, about whom she cared deeply, but to whom she was an outcast because of her lesbianism. More recently, in 2002, Sandra Cisneros published her epic novel, Caramelo, which chronicles the car journey of the Reyes clan, three families and their children who caravan all the way from Chicago to Mexico City to visit the grandparents. The book was inspired by the intense nostalgia for Mexico that used to overwhelm the real-life father of Sandra Cisneros, who would suddenly announce that he needed to go home and refused to hear any protests as he packed all the family's belongings into the car for the long trek across the border. Homecoming is ultimately impossible for her father in the novel. His loyalties are divided between his Mexican mother and his Mexican-American wife, and ultimately it is to the wife and her America that he surrenders. Return journeys are often a way to cement a goodbye that has already been said. This is the case in Jamaica Kincaid's memoir, My Brother, published in 1997, which concerns her reluctant return to Antigua, her native land, to visit her younger brother, who was dying of AIDS. There is not a bit of sentimentality in Kincaid's portrayal of her abandoned Caribbean home. If anything, it is snowy Vermont, which comes across as the idealized home where pharmacists quietly and graciously dispense the AZT that prolongs her brother's life by several months. In returning to Antigua, Kincaid must confront her mother again, who burned her books when she was a girl and was cruel and spiteful and did nothing to help her daughter become a writer. Reconciliation between daughter and mother will never come to pass. The discovery at the end of the book of her brother's closeted gay identity, of which she had no knowledge, further reinforces the distance that separates Kincaid from the Antigua she has left behind and yet writes about obsessively. More recently, Silvana Paternostro, in her memoir published last year, My Colombian War, A Journey Through the Country I Left Behind, likewise examines a return to a homeland with which she has a fraught relationship. In Paternostro's case, it is her class privilege which complicates her return home. As a student in the US and later as a journalist who writes for the New York Times, she has come to identify with the struggle of the working classes who back home see her as the enemy to be obliterated. It's no wonder that there are moments in her story when she chooses to remain cloistered in her grandmother's comfortable apartment where she can watch the latest news on CNN and connect easily to the internet. Being there without always having to be too there becomes a strategy for Pater Nostro to be able to return home. The pull of place for all of these hyphenated American travelers is strong even when homecoming ultimately proves to be impossible. Its impossibility is part of the seduction, even if this knowledge only becomes apparent after the journey in the course of writing. So I'm going to move on now to the more informal part of the talk and um, the slides. So when I started out in anthropology in the late 70s, I wasn't interested in studying Jews. I remember that uh, my great uncle Moises on my mother's Ashkenazi side, Polish-Jewish side, 
would say to me um, that I should be doing anthropology in Israel. He would say, why don't you go there and dig up something interesting about our Jewish history? He thought it was ridiculous that I wanted to work in Spain, where I worked first as an anthropologist. And he would say to me, don't you know that that's the country that expelled your father's ancestors, because I'm Sephardic on my father's side. Sephardic Jews are the Jews who were expelled from Spain in the 15th century in 1492. and so in my life as a, as a budding anthropologist, I stayed away from things Jewish. And I have another essay that, where I talk about how the discipline of anthropology really discourages people from, from working on Jewish subjects, especially if they happen to be Jews. Um, and so I worked in, in Spain and uh, Mexico and developed my identity as a Latina, as a Cuban-American woman. And yet the Jewish question haunted my anthropology, because in my field work in Spain and Mexico, I could pass as a native because I'm a Spanish speaker. I blended in easily. And um, I didn't want people to know that I was Jewish. I wanted to be accepted. Um, But at the same time, I felt that I was somehow being fake, not telling people that I was Jewish, that I was keeping quiet about my um, Jewishness. I tried to convince myself that, that it didn't really matter if I, if I cross-dressed now and then as, as a kind of Catholic, um, because I wasn't a religious Jew anyway. But, um, but I wasn't at peace about this. Um, I felt like an imposter. I felt like a coward. Now, in Cuba, when I started traveling there in the early 90s, I couldn't be a hidden Jew for various reasons. Um, Among them, I was the first in my extended family to travel to Cuba. And even though my family completely disapproved of my desire to reconnect with the island, I was entrusted with a sacred task, a Jewish task. My great uncle Moises, the same uncle that had told me um, that to be working, that I should have been working in Israel rather than in Spain, he had lost his 11-year-old son to leukemia in Cuba in 1954, and this, is, this was his son, Henry. And it had broken uh, his heart and my aunt Soyla's heart to have to leave Henry behind in his grave on the island when the family left Cuba in the early 60s. So they asked me to go to the Jewish cemetery in Guanabacoa, which is right outside of Havana, and try to find and photograph his tombstone. Now, this might not seem like a very big deal, but of course you know how difficult it is to travel to Cuba because of the US embargo. And in this period, in the early 90s, um, there had still been very little contact between uh, the US and Cuba. So we weren't sure um, whether his grave would still be there. We didn't know if Jewish cemeteries and synagogues and Torahs were still being taken care of. We didn't know what kinds of Jewish traces remained on the landscape of Cuba. And so I went in search of Henry's tomb, and I found it. And I think of Henry, um, this, this dead cousin, as the first Jew that I went in search of um, in Cuba. In Cuba, I found his grave, and, the, and his grave was the first Jewish photograph that I brought back uh, from Cuba. So this was 1991. It was the beginning of numerous journeys that I would uh, then take to Cuba over these next uh, 17 years trying to understand the lives of Jews who still make their home um, on the island. 
But bringing back the photograph of Henry's grave to my great uncle and great aunt, to whom it meant so much, was the beginning of my realization early on of the importance of photographs in these homeward journeys. And the book that I recently wrote, An Island Called Home, is a collaboration with a Cuban photographer based um, in Havana. And you'll be seeing his photographs um, in a couple of moments. So I left Cuba um, before I turned five, and um, I can't remember uh, my childhood um, in Cuba, but my parents, like so many Cubans who left in the early 60s, who were just allowed um, one suitcase uh, when they left, they were able to grab um, the family photographs. Um, and most Cubans, that was the one um, valuable possession that they took with them um, when they left the island. And it was looking at these black and white photographs um, as I was growing up here in New York that I first saw Cuba again. It was through those photographs that I had a vision of what Cuba was like. And I used to think that if I could stare, if I stared at them over and over, I would be able to remember something of Cuba. So I want to give you just a quick history of uh, the Jewish presence in Cuba using some of these old family photographs. This was my grandmother, um, Esther Glinsky, my maternal grandmother. And I always like to begin the story with her because um, I knew all four of my grandparents very well. She was the one that lived the longest. She died in the year 2000. She was 92. And I always used to stop in Miami on my way to Cuba. I would stop and visit her in her condo in Miami Beach. Well, Hisela was there too. And, uh, and then go on to Cuba. And um, Baba, who I was very close to, tried to support what I was doing, but didn't understand why I needed to go to Cuba so much. She could understand that I might want to go once or twice and see what this place was like where I was born, but it, it became a regular journey for me. I became a Cuba addict, um, as I call people who travel to Cuba all the time, and she kept saying, ¿Qué te perdió en Cuba? What did you lose in Cuba that you keep having to go back? And I recognize now that she's passed, that uh, in many ways she would have wished that I had stayed with her in Miami rather than stopping, making a stop in Miami and going on to Cuba. So anyway, she was one of thousands of Jewish immigrants who arrived in Cuba in the 20s. There were already uh, some American Jewish expatriates in Cuba at the turn of the 20th century. There were Sephardic Jews as well, and then um, Ashkenazi Jews largely from Poland and Russia began to arrive um, in the 1920s. And you probably understand that the reason that there wasn't a Jewish presence in Cuba before 1902, which was after the Spanish-American War, was because Cuba was um, a colony of the Spanish Empire and no religion um, except for Catholicism was permitted in any of the colonies as well as in Spain. And Cuba was one of the last colonies to, to gain its independence. So anyway, so, so starting in, in the early decades of the 20th century, that's when Jews begin to arrive in Cuba. And uh, many of them go to Cuba, particularly um, Ashkenazi Jews from Poland and Russia, because they're trying to get into the United States, but the United States has passed this um, Immigration Act, which seeks to limit uh, the numbers of Eastern and, and Southern European people, namely Jews, that can um, come to the United States in this period. So many Jews go to Cuba because they learn um, in the Yiddish press back in Poland that if they can just get to Cuba, 
it's only 90 miles away from the United States and they could practically swim over to this side. So all they have to do is get to Cuba. And, um, and so many Jews go to Cuba in this period thinking that it's going to be a temporary stay. They even call it Hotel Cuba, thinking they'll be there momentarily and then they'll hop over to the United States. But that turns out to be a lot more difficult than they expect, number one. And then number two, many of them actually fall in love with Cuba and think that they have found an amazing refuge after suffering a lot of anti-Jewish hatred um, in Europe before their arrival. So here are my grandparents. My gra grandmother had hoped to be a cabaret singer when she got to Cuba and then um, discovered that she had to help get the rest of the family um, out of Poland um, to safety in Cuba as conditions grew worse. Met my uh, grandfather and they married. Here you see their wedding invitation in uh, Spanish and Yiddish. So you already see the beginning of a kind of Cuban-Jewish culture forming. And um, the Jews, when they arrived in Cuba, they were very poor. Um, they worked, for example, as my grandfather did, on, on the railroad in Cuba. But most of them, particularly the men, were peddlers. The women worked um, in stores, you know, helping, helping out as employees. But the men were largely peddlers. And they fanned out all over the island of Cuba. So it's very interesting. You know, you meet Jews today in Cuba, and they're scattered all over in the least expected places. And that's because they're descendants of, of of these Jews that arrived in the 20s and 30s and settled all over the country and um, opened up these small uh, business enterprises. So by 1934, my grandparents, um, and together with my great-grandfather, who's the man that you see there in the straw hat, and it's kind of amazing because, you know, he was, you know, a Jewish immigrant from Poland. He already looks very Cuban, I think, by 1934 um, in that straw hat. And um, so to me, it's so similar to the pattern of, of Mexican and other Latin American immigrants where it takes several years to get the whole family, you know, to safety in one place. And that's very much what happened with my family, my grandparents working together with my great grandfather. They started in 1927 and by 1934, they had reunited most of the family in a very small town um, in the province of Matanzas in Cuba. Now, um, I was always aware as, as a young person growing up um, here in New York that the, the relatives that didn't make it to Cuba perished in the Holocaust. This was my uh, grandfather's mother um, who died um, in the war. This was my grandmother's grandmother um, who perished as well in the Holocaust. And interestingly enough, she didn't want to immigrate to Cuba because she was very, very religious back in Poland and she was afraid she wouldn't be able to maintain her religious customs, and so she stayed behind and ended up um, being killed in the war. So I was always very aware because these pictures were up on the wall in my grandparents' house and was always aware of those who hadn't made it across to Cuba, um, had, had been taken from us. So here are my grandparents um, with my, my mother, the little, little girl, and my Aunt Sylvia. They lived, in this, again, in the small town of Agramonte, and they were the only Jewish family um, in this town, a sugar-growing uh, town. They had hopes of one day moving to Havana, where most of the Jewish community had congregated. And already by the 30s and 40s, there were synagogues and Jewish schools and a Jewish newspaper and so on. And they had hopes of getting to Havana, but they didn't have enough money. So they were kind of hanging on in Agramonte. And then uh, my grandfather, who you see here, was very lucky at things like cards, and he played the lottery in Cuba and won 5,000 pesos. And uh, with those 5,000 pesos, which was a lot of money um, at that time, they moved to Havana and bought a little lace store um, where you see them um, here. So by the 50s, you know, the Jews who um, 
you know, had started out as, you know, very penniless working class people. Um, by, by this period, by, um, by the 50s, they're largely uh, middle and upper class. And I think you get a feeling for that in this, this picture of uh, my grandparents with my mother, uh, my aunt, um, and my uncle Mickey. So mid-50s, my parents meet. Um, you see here in this wonderful photograph of them, so young and so fresh. And, um, and their relationship was considered a problem um, in the era because my mother is Ashkenazi, a, a Jew of Polish background, and my father is Sephardic, a Jew of Turkish background. And this was considered, um, even though it seems crazy now, it was considered um, virtually an intermarriage um, when the two of them um, married in 1956. So there I am, uh, born in Cuba, um, with my mother strolling along the, the Malecon, the famous um, ocean uh, promenade, and um, very aware as I look back that there was this incredibly vibrant Jewish community. In a short period of time, the Jewish community um, built a lot of institutions in 40 years, basically. And this is a very interesting document. They, um, they had this celebration in honor of Jose Marti. Jose Marti was the, uh, the independence leader of Cuba. And here you see Jews kind of appropriating Marti for their own purposes and doing this uh, celebration, both in Yiddish um, and Spanish, of Marti. Uh, there was uh, there were Jewish restaurants, among them Moshe Pipik, um, that you see here um, in Havana, very popular restaurant. And this ad for the Tropicana is extremely interesting because it's in Spanish and Yiddish and Hebrew. And so you really get the sense that the Jews had integrated themselves um, into um, Cuban life by this period and participated in, in the most, um, most well-known nightclub of the era. So anyway, so um, the revolution begins in 1959, um, as you know, and initially almost all Cubans support um, the revolution, 99% do, um, including the Jews of Cuba in this era who numbered about 15,000 uh, by this time. And um, here's my mother, and I use this picture in the movie um, as well. Um, and uh, my parents initially are very, very happy with the revolution because one of the first reforms that Fidel Castro enacts is to reduce rents by half. And my parents were renting an apartment in Havana at the time. They were young parents. They had me and, and my younger brother. And, um, and the rents were suddenly reduced by half. They were thrilled. And my mother went out and bought the lamp um, that you see in this picture with the money that she saved from the rent. So this was her revolutionary lamp. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, but come 1960, 1961, uh, things begin to change, and this is the period in which um, uh, the revolutionary government starts to expropriate and nationalize properties, um, among them not just oil companies and sugarcane plantations and so on, but also small properties, small shops, and so on. And the majority of the Jews were were either still peddlers who had their you know independent uh, business enterprises, or they were small shop owners who had stores like my grandparents uh, with the lace shop. And it's very poignant. I'm now you know doing research in Miami on the Cuban Jewish exile community. And it's very poignant to think about this because in the mid to the late 50s, this is when the Jewish community thought they were staying forever. And they built three huge synagogues um, in this era in Havana, expecting that they were going to stay. And this is very poignant. This is a, a plaque at the entrance to the Sephardic um, synagogue in Havana. And literally, people were putting their names up on this plaque on, on the eve of their departure from Cuba. They thought they were going to stay. But as the expropri 
expropriations became generalized. They decided that their economic livelihood uh, was threatened, and they chose to leave in uh, in en masse. Literally, it was it was an exodus, and 90% of this community of 15,000 15, left Cuba in this era, um, in the early 60s. And here you see um, my grandmother um, leaving Cuba. So. Here I am. Um, this was one of the pictures that, that I used to look at all the time um, when I was growing up here and thinking about Cuba before I went back. Um, and it's a photograph of me standing in front of uh, what is considered the most important Jewish synagogue in Havana. It's um, like the Jewish community center of Havana. It's called the Patronato. And, um, and I would look at it and ask my mother about it, and she would say, well, you know, we lived exactly half a block away from the synagogue. We could see it from the window of, of our apartment. And um, so in many ways, my journey of, of return was, was to give some of these, these images back to my mother of, of the Jewish Cuba that still remains. So, so initially, when I started traveling to Cuba, I was interested in going back to the actual spaces where I had stood as a child and kind of reclaiming those spaces in terms of my experience and visually in terms of, of working photographically. And um, so I was going back to Cuba on this you know, kind of spiritual, personal journey. Um, when I started going in the early 90s, I had been once before as a student in 1979. And so in the early 90s, I'm, I'm there, and it's a moment of dramatic transformations um, in Cuba. This is a moment in which, um, well, as you know, the Soviet Union has collapsed. Um, Cuba is no longer receiving the, the huge subsidies that had maintained its revolutionary programs. And suddenly, um, they're, they're just you know in huge, huge economic crisis, the special period, as it's called. And, um, and in addition to opening up to tourism, um, the Cuban government also decides to open up to religion to give people an alternative space where they can go at a moment of great uh, moral and spiritual crisis. So this picture, and all the, all the pictures to come by Umberto Mayol, the photographer I worked with, is really wonderful because it shows this conjuncture of the revolutionary and the religious on one wall, right? So you've got you know, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro and Lenin and Karl Marx and Jose Marti, and then you've also got the Sacred Heart of Jesus all sort of coming together. You know, in this in this one space, and and this is this is the kind of conjuncture that you see in the early '90s as people are kind of dealing with the revolutionary past that they've you know that they've you know worked so hard to build, the revolutionary present and future that they've worked so hard to build, and on the other hand, this this new opening to religion that starts to happen in the early '90s. By the late '90s, 1998, the Pope um, visits Cuba, and um, and all of these religious openings that have been set in motion. Um, start to get cemented by this period. And um, it's very interesting, after the Pope's visit in 1998, Christmas trees become available again for sale. They hadn't been um, until then because the regime had attempted um, to create a completely um, atheistic um, society. Um, so in the early 90s, people also, there's an opening to, um, to the Afro-Cuban religions, to Santeria and Palo Monte, which is a very, very um, important transformation. People hadn't lost those connections to those religions, but they had really kept them underground. And after the early 90s, if you've been to Cuba, it's very common to see people dressed in white from head to toe, and that's because they've recently been initiated into Santeria, and you dress in white for a year um, after your initiation.
So with this return to religion, the Jewish community also starts to come together and to organize itself again. And this man, Dr. Miller, was a very important force in the revitalization. He just passed away um, two years ago. He contacted the Joint Distribution Committee um, here in New York and asked for support um, for the Jewish community and received a lot of support. Um, and with the support of the JDC, other Jewish American um, institutions followed, among them B'nai B'rith and Hadassah and Ort many, many um, Jewish uh, organizations from the United States. And not only that, uh, they began to travel in missions um, to Cuba. And this photograph is so wonderful because you really don't know if it's a 1950s photograph or a contemporary photograph, but it is, it is a contemporary photograph. And this 1956 Chevy is parked right, you know, right in front of the Patronato Synagogue and it's owned by, by a member of the Jewish community. So this interesting transformation um, takes place in this era where all these American Jewish missions begin to travel um, to Cuba, and they continue to travel um, to Cuba because one of the um, exceptions to the U.S. trade embargo is um, that you can travel on a religious mission. The United States is very interested in, in having God, you know, come back to Cuba, not, not get lost again as, as, as he did in one era. And so, so religious missions are very much uh, actually supported by the trade embargo. So many religious missions go, not just Jewish, they're also Catholic and Pastors for Peace is a Protestant mission and so on. And so, so all of these religious missions are, are in Cuba. Cuba now and many, many um, you know, Jewish American missions. And, and to me, as an anthropologist, I compare it a little bit to the Kung of the Kalahari Desert, um, whom you may know if you're an anthropologist who kind of became this overstudied tribe. There was a moment in which you know, they, were, they were being studied continually. You know, there were 10 anthropologists for every Kung person. And it's kind of what's happened a little bit with the Jewish community in Cuba, that it's become a kind of overstudied tribe. And and everybody wants to go there and to um, and to commune with them, and I think part of the the aura that that the Jews of Cuba have is um, the fact that they are connected to this revolutionary. Um, presence, the presence of Che Guevara, and I think this photograph really nicely shows that conjuncture of, of Jewishness and, uh, and the revolutionary uh, legacy. It appears as if Che is actually in the synagogue himself. And um, so this desire to, to help those in need, tzedakah, which is a very important uh, Jewish concept, is now really being being um, in some ways expressed through this Jewish American interest in traveling and helping um, the Jews of Cuba. I just spoke last night to a community in, in Westchester and um, there were um, various people in that audience that had traveled to Cuba on these missions and they really were very, very enthusiastic about travel to Cuba. They had brought a Torah. Um, to Cuba and shared it with people there. And there's just tremendous, um, tremendous, tremendous enthusiasm and a kind of romance around the Jews of Cuba that has become a very, very interesting um, phenomenon. So um, among the, 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 the goods that are brought for the, for the community are medical supplies. Um, and there's actually a pharmacy now inside of the Patronato Synagogue that distributes these medical goods, both to people in the community and to people uh, beyond who need them. And um, among, among the other um, donations that come are matzahs, of course, which is the unleavened bread um, eaten at Passover. And um, 
I love this picture. This is a man named um, Isak Nissenbaum who took a the box from um, from the round. There's this round shmura matzah that um, Orthodox Jews uh, make, and he took the box. He attached a little wooden stick to it and, and turned it into a little fan. Um, since um, Cuba is a tropical country, so he kind of Cubanized something um, very Jewish. Um, so again, this kind of fascination with traveling to Cuba, these Havana tour buses that, that, um, that bring Jewish missions, and this bus is literally right at the entrance to the uh, Jewish cemetery where my cousin Henry is buried, who you saw at the beginning of the presentation. Um, so in terms of, of the support that, that people get in Cuba, again, this, this desire to kind of to share, to redistribute the goods that American Jews have here with Jews in Cuba is very strong, and this young man is holding up a newspaper article um, about a bat mitzvah that helps Cuban kids, a, a young girl um, actually here in New Jersey who donated part of her bat mitzvah money so that he could celebrate um, his bar mitzvah in Cuba. So with the support of, of the JDC and other American Jewish institutions, this whole program has been put in place in Cuba. And many people who are children of very revolutionary parents who, who really um, disconnected from religion and from Judaism in the heyday of the revolution in the 60s and 70s and 80s, a lot of these um, offspring of these people are coming back to religion and bringing their own children into these synagogues that are now open and, um, and provide religion. Uh, religious instruction. So this is a bar uh, bat mitzvah class, and I find it interesting that um, that along with you know religious information, the Coca-Cola shirt um, also <laughs> arrives as, as part of, of what's coming from, uh, from the US to Cuba. Um, so here's a, an actual bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah um, in Cuba. And Israeli dancing is, is taught um, in the synagogue, and um, uh, there's also a Hebrew school um, that functions on Sundays. And it's a community that has attracted um, so much attention that even Steven Spielberg um, has visited with the community. He was there in 2002 um, for a festival of his films and asked to meet with the community. And this little boy, um, Moises, is holding up a picture of himself with, with Spielberg. So, so it's a celebrity community in that sense because celebrities also go to visit uh, the community. So I want to tell you about a couple of the people um, that I met. A lot of their stories are very, very riveting. I found them so. This, this man is uh, David Tacher, um, who lives in Santa Clara. And Santa Clara is the city that's most associated with the memory of Che Guevara. It was from Santa Clara that Che led um, one of the most important battalions um, in, in the revolution. And, um, and David is, is precisely one of these people whose parents were, were revolutionaries, and he was brought up um, without any religious background, but always knew that, that he was Jewish. And in the late 90s, he came back to his uh, Jewish roots and um, started fixing up the Jewish cemetery in Santa Clara, which had been in very, very bad shape. And um, one of his dreams became, in this period in the late 90s, um, early part of this century, was to um, build a memorial um, to the Holocaust um, in the Santa Clara Cemetery. But he wasn't sure how he would do this. Um, he wasn't sure exactly how to conceptualize it. And he ended up meeting a woman named Miriam Saul, who's a Cuban Jew who lives in Atlanta. And uh, Miriam Saul started traveling to Cuba in the late 90s. She had been to Israel, but she thought that she wasn't quite home yet in Israel and decided that as a Cuban Jew, where she needed to go was Cuba. 
when she started traveling to Cuba, and Cuba became it. It became the, the place that she had to reconnect with, kind of like me, but in, in a different kind of way. And uh, her, fa her husband calls her a born-again Cuban. And, um, and David Tachet is this born-again Jew. And so the two of them uh, met, and, um, and Miriam did something very interesting. She contacted the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. to see if they could help with, the, with the, an idea for this memorial. They decided um, to donate 200 cobblestones from the Warsaw Ghetto for her to bring to Cuba and bring to David Tachet um, to use in this memorial. And each of those cobblestones weighs 22 pounds, and you're only allowed 44 pounds when you travel uh, to Cuba from, uh, you know, legally from Miami. So, so with the help of various people, she's been delivering these uh, cobblestones from the Warsaw Ghetto, and it's a very meaningful gift because, as I said, the majority of the Jews who found their way to Cuba um, were from Poland and, um, and escaped the Holocaust. So, um, so here's the uh, better shot of the, of the whole memorial, and anybody who visits is asked to, to water a tree that's been uh, planted there. So among other interesting stories that I, that I learned, and, um, and I not only um, spoke with people in Havana but traveled all over the island, um, was this man, um, Jose Barlia, who lives in Santi Espiritu, and Santi Espiritu is a really fascinating town um, near um, near the Oriente province and um, and it was really really interesting to to meet with him he's holding up a picture here of his father next to a tombstone that that I don't remember that we had seen and filmed um, in the cemetery. There's two cemeteries outside of Havana, and this is in the Sephardic Cemetery. There's this very, very elaborate tombstone, and I kept photographing it and looking at it. I didn't know, you know who it belonged to. The, the woman's name was Elisa Behar, no relation to me, but uh, sharing the same last name. And, um, and I always wondered about this tombstone and assumed that it had been built by a Cuban Jew who had left the island. Well, it turned out that his father had built this tombstone, and this tombstone was for his father's first wife. And the first wife had died in childbirth. So both the, the wife and the child are buried in this tomb, and he it has Italian marble, and he wrote a very um, elaborate uh, poem um, there on, on, the, on the tombstone. And it wasn't until I got to Santi Espirito and we started talking that I learned that it was his father um, that had built um, this, this tombstone um, for his wife who died in childbirth. And this man, Jose Barlia, was born of the second wife, of his father's second wife. And, um, and here you see, if you can see Villa Elisa. So this whole house, this was almost like a mausoleum that he built um, in memory of his wife. And it's, it's completely full of Jewish stars, as you see on the entrance and throughout the house, there are these stars of David. And um, so it's almost as if they live in this kind of mausoleum for this first you know, wife that, you know, that he didn't even know. And, um, and um, the, the further story that he told me is that um, his father insisted that his second wife, his mother, uh, give birth to him by C-section because he was so afraid he was going to lose her too. And to me, I don't know, seeing this house, it was just a very poignant experience. I had this sense of, and, and I feel this so much in Cuba, of people kind of living within the shadows of the past, kind of haunted by ghosts of the past, and not changing things, leaving things as they are, and living kind of within and among these shadows and ghosts. And that was really the feeling I had when I visited with this family in Santi Espiritu.
So I was also very interested in um, finding documents of, of, of a Jewish past in Cuba, and I was concerned that maybe people wouldn't have kept these things, that during the era of the revolution, these things, the heyday of the revolution, these things would have disappeared or gotten lost or destroyed or whatever. And um, and I found um, that uh, Sarah, who you saw, you saw the document earlier, had had uh, preserved this ketubah, this marriage contract, Jewish marriage contract, that belonged to her parents. And for the longest time, she thought she was saving it for sentimental reasons. And um, then in the mid '90s, um, their daughter, who's a dental surgeon, ended up going to Mexico for a conference, and she decided she wanted to defect, that she wanted to leave uh, Cuba, but she wanted to do so legally because she wanted to be able to travel back and forth to visit her parents, who, who don't intend to leave. And so she went to the Israeli embassy in Mexico City and said, "You know, I'm Jewish. I would like to make Aliyah. I would like to be able to immigrate to Israel." And they said to her, well, fine, but can you show us uh, some documentation that you're Jewish? And so she contacted her mother back in Cuba, and her mother sent this very ketubah to her in Mexico. And with this ketubah, she was able to leave um, for Israel. She was granted permission to leave for Israel. But that's not the end of the story. Subsequently, her brother also decided to leave Cuba, used the same document to leave. Subsequently, her brother left, subsequently a nephew. So all of these family members have ended up leaving with this ketubah. So this Jewish marriage contract becomes a kind of flying carpet, becomes a kind of passport um, through which um, you know family members are leaving. And, and it, it's a bittersweet thing. Obviously, the family members are, are doing well and supporting them back in Cuba, but they also um, have this great feeling of, of loneliness. And um, I think this picture really conveys it well. She's holding up um, a picture here of the last quinceañera. The quinceañera is the 15th birthday party, very common throughout Latin America and the Caribbean that's held for, for young women. So she's holding up the picture of the last quinceañera that was celebrated in the Patronato Synagogue in 1959. All these young women had turned 15 in 1959, and she's there um, with the Star of David made of flowers. And then she turned and said to me, um, of all those women, the only one who's left in Cuba is me. And so definitely, and then I, and recently I, I showed this slide uh, in Miami, and there were several women in the audience who were in that picture. <laughs> they said, "Oh my God, I was in that picture." And several of them um, were there, and it was very, very, very poignant. So. And there were also some Jews that came to Cuba after the war, um, importantly enough, and this woman, Ida Goodstadt, who's a professor of computer engineering at the University of Havana, is holding up the passport that uh, her mother and her older sister used to immigrate to Cuba uh, from Poland. She was born a couple of months later. And her father was a survivor of Auschwitz, and he brought with him the concentration camp uniform that um, he had worn and um, and she tell she told me she says that um, that he would wear it on cool nights in Havana sometimes it gets cold in Cuba in January he would wear this this shirt and just weep quietly he didn't want to talk but he would just put the shirt on and so she's held on to it and she recently donated it to the Jewish community of Cuba so it's now part of the legacy of the community this man was uh, probably one of the most interesting um, people that I met in Cuba. He lives in uh, the small town of Palma Soriano. 
um, which is an hour away from Santiago de Cuba. If you know the island of Cuba, it's kind of long this way. So Havana's here and Santiago de Cuba's here and Palma Soriano's just kind of above it, small town. And he's the last Jew who lives in this town. Um, so we went to visit him and I was uh, brought to visit him by uh, Eugenia Farin, who's the leader of the Jewish community in Santiago de Cuba. And she said, well, I wouldn't bring most people to see Jaime because they would just form the wrong impression of him. They would think he was poor and pitiful and they would look at the condition of his house and you know, wouldn't, wouldn't know what to make of him. But she said, but I think you're going to. You're going to understand him. And I was really glad that she brought me um, to see him. It was a really amazing experience to spend a day with him. Um, indeed, I was glad for the warnings because the house was very, very sad and decrepit and almost cave-like, and he also stuttered. Um, but he turned out to be this kind of, I don't know what to call him, like an intellectual out in Palma Soriano. He had this incredible library filled with you know, very moldy books because Cuba's so humid. And when he found out I was an anthropologist, he pulled out a copy of Levi Strauss's Structural Anthropology. I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> in Palma Soriano. And, uh, you know, and then I um, asked him who his favorite author was, and he said it was Kafka. And it was just you know, sort of amazing, you know, this man reading Kafka you know, in, in Palma Soriano. And, um, and he started pulling things out of these old cabinets, and among them this letter in, in Yiddish and uh, sent from family members who, who perished in the Holocaust and a picture of them. And then he really shocked us when he brought out this photograph. It was sent, um, this postcard, I'm sorry, um, that was sent from a concentration camp. And as you see, it has Hitler um, stamps on it. And it was really chilling for all of us. He'd never shown these things to anybody. Ohenya was completely surprised that he had all these things in his possession. So for me, it was it was kind of like doing anthropology at the end of the world, you know, going on this search for Jews in Cuba and finding this man, this last Jew in Palma Soriano, holding on, literally holding on, uh, to these to these uh, strange, sometimes surreal, uh, memories, and um, and you can see here by the state of his hands um, that you know that he lives lives from working with his hands. He he was the son of, of he was the son of these bourgeois Hungarian Jewish immigrants who owned a store. Um, in the town of Palma Soriano, he stayed after um, after the revolution. His parents passed away, and he he stayed alone. He's very reclusive um, in this town, and he he you know he grows uh, fruits and things like that, bananas as you can see, and um, and so he he hadn't smiled the whole day. He was very solemn, and um, but I noticed that he was um, that he was, that he had sugarcane sugarcane planted um, here in this field. And um, so I said to him, oh, um, is there a sugar mill nearby? And he looked at me and he said, yes, my mouth. And, um, <laughs> and I thought that was hilarious. Uh, he, didn't, he wasn't trying to make a joke, but, but I thought it was, and I cracked up. And it was the first moment that I think as you see in this picture where he somewhat smiled um, and was a little less solemn um, than usual. So um, what's interesting about the Jewish community in Cuba, and I think what attracts me to them, is that the majority of the Jews in Cuba are Jews by choice, which I think is a nicer word than convert, even though convert is also okay. And so the majority are, are converts to Judaism. I counted only about 25 people that are Jewish, both on their mother's and father's side. The majority are Jewish on one side of the family, usually on the father's side, and you know, in traditional Judaism, you, you are Jewish. If you are Jewish on your mother's side, you have to be born of a Jewish womb. 
And so the majority are Jewish on the father's side, um, but the JDC and other American Jewish um, organizations have been sending you know, rabbis to Cuba periodically. There's no rabbi in Cuba you know, there permanently and sending these rabbis to help uh, convert people and so on. And as you know, men um, to, be, you know, to be Jewish in, in the Orthodox sense and even the conservative Jewish sense have to be circumcised and typically circumcision happens when you know when a boy is you know a young man is eight days old that's usually when circumcision the circumcision ritual is done uh, but in Cuba because of the revolution and and you know the the decline of the Jewish community in the 60s 70s and 80s and no you know no rabbinical presence uh, people you know weren't boys men weren't circumcised and so these boys um, are holding up their conversion documents. They've been circumcised and converted. And um, their grandfather, um, David Pernas Levy, and this is in Camagüey, who runs the Jewish community in Camagüey, he was circumcised, circumcised at the age of 67. And, um, and I was really interested in this and all these you know, men in their 60s and 70s who were being circumcised to, to become um, halachic Jews. And so I asked David you know, very delicately, um, well, what was that experience like? You know, um, and so he said, well, you know, it was, it was my contract with Abraham, and um, if Abraham could be circumcised at the age of 99, then being 67 isn't so bad. And um, anyway, so Cuban humor um, took care of it. And the community is also much more mixed racially and ethnically um, than it was before the revolution um, as well. The kind of mixing that was represented by my parents, Ashkenazi Sephardic marriage is now a much broader mix and there are many um, Afro-Cubans who are also um, Jewish on one side of their family as, as this young girl is. And um, she lives in Guantanamo, and you know we associate Guantanamo with you know the horrendous things that are happening there at the base. But uh, but there's also, of course, uh, a Cuban town of Guantanamo, and this this young Guantanamera is holding up a picture of her great great grandmother who stayed behind in Turkey. And there's a really striking resemblance, I think, between her and her great great grandmother. And what's so neat about the picture too is she looks like your typical Cuban schoolgirl in her young pioneer um, outfit, and you would never know that she's also uh, Jewish. So um, he is one of, this is one of the, um, the characters in the Jewish community in Cuba. Um, I don't know if I'm going on too long, I'll try to, a little bit longer, okay. a little bit longer, okay. Um, he's one of the characters in the community. He's known as the Schnorrer, and if you know that word in Yiddish, a Schnorrer is a person who's like a freeloader, who's always kind of asking for stuff, and he's kind of the Schnorrer of the, of the community, and uh, he's holding up, he's very proud. He, he appears in all of these journalistic articles about the Jews of Cuba because he's omnipresent. He goes from one synagogue to another um, all day, you know, trying to get handouts and breakfast and lunch and dinner and so on. And, um, and so he's holding up this Brazilian publication about the Jews of Cuba, and here he is actually in the act of, of Schnorring. Um, um, and um, and initially, you know, I, I found him very annoying and irritating until I started to realize that anthropologists are schnorers too, in the sense that we're we're always going around asking people to tell us their stories, but we're also kind of omnipresent in, in our own way when we're doing our, our research. Um, so one of the things that that, that I learned in, in the course of this project was um, the important presence of Jews as well in the revolution. And even though it's it's a small number, 
um, they were definitely uh, pr present and, and important relative to their, to their size. Um, this is Fabio Grobart, who's an uh, economics professor at the University of Havana, and his father was the founder of the Cuban Communist Party in 1925. And you know, most people don't know that his father was a, a Polish Jewish immigrant, arrived in 1924, and literally the year after he arrived, taken off his woolen coat and was, you know, helping to found um, the Communist Party. There were so many. Uh, Yiddish-speaking immigrants um, involved in the foundation of the party that they actually had an interpreter who could interpret between between Yiddish and Spanish. So, so here he is, and he's in fact holding up um, a picture. And if you can see that of Fidel Castro with his with his arm around his father, and his father used to introduce Fidel Castro at the meetings of the Cuban Communist Party until his father's death in the early 90s. So, kind of an interesting connection there. And and I went with uh, Fabio to the May Day um, rally. So he's, he's quite a fervent um, revolutionary and would never set foot in any of the synagogues for any religious activity. So important for you to know that not, not everybody has, you know, has, has become missionized in a sense. There are many people that, that actually resent you know, the presence of all of these American Jews and all of this help coming from outside. And, and he's definitely somebody who holds that perspective. So um, Jose Levy, who um, Hisela also knows very well, um, became a very close friend of mine. Um, he was very important in the revitalization of the Sephardic community. Here he's shown with his daughter, um, Danaida. And he brought her up um, as a Jew. And her mother, she, she basically, her, her parents divorced when she was very little. And uh, she lived with her mother, but her father brought her to Jewish services from the time, from the early 90s, uh, from the time she was two years old, which is how long I've known her. And, um, and her mother um, is Afro-Cuban, she's a Jehovah's Witness. So, um, so Danaida grew up in this interesting household. Her mother's a Jehovah's Witness, her older sister is a Santera, and she was brought up as, as a Jew. So three religions coexisting in one house, a very, very Cuban phenomenon. Here she was ironing her school uniform, and she always dreamed of one day uh, immigrating to Israel from the time she was about 12 and started to to uh, let me interview her, and many Jews in Cuba um, have left for Israel in recent years. And um, I went back uh, this summer, uh, this past July, to Cuba to follow up with Danaida. She had um, requested um, a leave uh, to go to Israel. And um, when I went in July, she was waiting to receive her passport and her paperwork. Very sad situation, because her mother um, is staying behind, uh, has stayed behind. And here she is, she married the age of 18, she married her um, neighborhood uh, boyfriend, not, not Jewish. They had just gotten their Cuban passports when I was there, and they left uh, this past November. So I'm in touch with Danaida through email now, and with her permission, I've been keeping the various emails that she's been sending me, kind of diaries of, of how she's doing. I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, so she's ended up in, a, in an absorption center in Beersheba along with her um, husband and her father. She, and I asked her what she misses of Cuba. She says, don't even ask. I miss my rowdy neighbors, potholes in the streets, Cuban pizzas, the camellos, which are the big truck-like buses, everything. But that's normal, good or bad. I was born there, and you always miss what's yours, even if you didn't always like everything about it. I need my mama and miss her very much. You can't imagine how many times I've wanted to shout her name and run out to look for her but I have to be strong since every immigrant has to go through this. And I knew that our separation was going to be very hard. Okay, Ruth, I'll leave you now because I have to make dinner. Carlos sends greetings and tomorrow I'll send you my papa's email so you can write to him. He sends you greetings too. Ciao. 
So an interesting phenomenon, I'll be closing very soon now, is the creation of this Hotel Raquel that opened up um, in Cuba in the year 2003. And essentially, the Cuban government has, has noticed that there's this strong American Jewish interest um, in the Jews of Cuba. And so they built this Jewish-themed hotel. This is what they called it, Hotel Raquel. And there's lots of Jewish you know, imagery um, all, over the, all over the hotel. And there's even a Jewish porter um, who works there, um, but I think he's about to leave for Israel. And uh, <laughs> and um, there's this interesting, you know, Madonna and child there in the <laughs> in in the lobby of the Jewish themed hotel. And uh, <laughs> and it's very interesting. Um, all of the rooms um, are named after biblical characters, Old Testament characters. So there is an Abraham room and a Sarah room and an Isaac room and a Rebecca room and an Esther room and you know, Samuel and so on. I mean, all these, all these Old Testament names um, and very poignant for me because um, these are all names in, in my own family and very common in, in Jewish families to, to have these re ever-repeating uh, diasporic names. And of course, there's a room uh, named Ruth at the Hotel uh, Raquel. And, um, and I was there with a group right when the hotel opened a group of writers and intellectuals who wanted to travel to Cuba with me, so we, we organized a trip, and um, we had to stay somewhere in Havana, um, and the hotel had just opened, and I thought, you know, I would do my field work um, staying in, you know, in the Hotel Raquel and staying in the Ruth room, and uh, it turned out to be a very bittersweet um, experience, as you can imagine. Uh, the air conditioning was always turned on so high that I had to sleep with a sweater, and in Cuba, um, which seemed very strange. And if you called the front desk uh, and they put you on hold, you would hear the theme song to Schindler's List. Um, it was a very bizarre, you know, um, Cuban-Jewish diaspora land uh, that they that they constructed, um, probably, you know, for people like me, you know, people like Lot's wife, you know, who are always looking back, who, who want to go home, even when perhaps it's not possible to go home anymore. And so it was very bittersweet, and bittersweet also, and interestingly, the hotel um, is on Calle Amargura, on Bitterness Street. So it adds another uh, dimension to the whole, to the whole experience, and, um, and staying there, in fact, I, I had a dream. I had a dream that you know that I was um, in this. The Cuba had suddenly become a very cold place, and I didn't have a winter coat. I was freezing in Cuba, and uh, and then when I woke up, I remembered this this old picture of my mother and me. My mother looking utterly beautiful, like a movie star, uh, in that picture, and and thinking about you know this early moment before my identity was determined before you know i knew who i would be and who i would become so that on a kind of sad note but on a happier note um it's very interesting to me that the majority of the women who convert to judaism in cuba today you you normally when you convert you take you take on a jewish name you take a hebrew name and the majority of the women choose the name ruth as their jewish name because ruth is considered the first convert uh, to Judaism. She actually, if, if you read the book of Ruth, she, she wasn't an Israelite, she wasn't Jewish, she was a Moabite. 
and you know the story that she chooses to to go back with Naomi after the death of of her husband, even though Naomi basically says, you know, your husband is dead, you can go back to your people, and she says, no, your people will be my people, right? So she's considered this this first convert, and um, and so to me, it's very moving to know that um, that so many of these women that I've been meeting who who are Jews by choice have converted to Judaism because their husbands are of Jewish background, take the name Ruth. And so even though I perhaps um, no longer have a home in Cuba, perhaps after this long journey, have discovered that I don't have a home, um, that maybe all I have is a hotel room named Ruth, um, there's still there's still other, other women in Cuba with the name Ruth who, who truly do have a home there. So thank you. <laughs>